Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Rob Basham. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here at Salem Alliance Church, and I'm glad that you are here. I hope you're doing well. I'm having a great day. I hope you are as well. I hear that the sun is out. I'm going to see that here in a little bit, so I'm pretty excited about that. We are continuing on in our study of the book of Esther. We're looking at how God is connecting the dots, how he loves to work anonymously, often behind the scenes in our culture. And we're going to continue on today. Today we're looking at chapter 3, and today we get to meet the villain of the story. We're going to meet the villain. His name is Haman. Every great story has a villain. The best stories have great villains. Darth Vader. Ursula, the Wicked Witch of the West. We have these great villains. That's why I love Bond movies. There's always a different villain, and they're incredible. Some of you might think that this guy here is a villain. I I just want you to know that Bill Belichick is the coach of the Patriots, and he is one of my heroes. He's not a villain. But regardless, I'm trying to contextualize to my audience, and so I know some of you may need to picture the face of a villain as we read about the villain here in Esther named Haman. Let his face burn in your mind. Feel the rage enter up. Let it do its work. I'm sorry, Bill. This is really hard for me, but we're going to let it stand. Listen, last week, Steve began to explain to us and, and, and just released this story. It was pretty great how God's at work despite the appearances. And we began to look at the dots in chapter 1 and 2. Here's some of the dots that we began to, to unpack. Xerxes, the king of all of Persia, he calls this great banquet. He has too much to drink. In his drunkenness, he says to his queen wife, you need to come. I want to parade you in front of all my friends. She says, no way. So he deposes of her. Then he creates a harem, and Esther is taken into that harem. Esther is made queen. Her cousin Mordecai just happens to be also promoted to a palace official in the story. And the dots begin to connect. Mordecai then is hanging out by the king's gate, and he discovers that there's this assassination plot against King Xerxes. And so he goes and he reveals it, and his favor in the eyes of the king also grows. And the story continues on, and today we're going to add dots to the story, and we're going to see what God is doing. So if you would, turn with me to Esther chapter 3. It's on page 418 in the Bible in front of you. I encourage you to look because we're going to be a little interactive as we read it today. If you're looking in your app on your phone, would you turn and would you use the NLT version, the New Living Translation, so that you can follow along with me. Little backstory here, we have King Xerxes. King Xerxes' approval rating is quite low right now. Historians kind of give us a backdrop that he has returned from a war with Greece that he lost, like his father, King Darius, had also lost the war with Greece. He had tried to extend the empire. Because of that, the military is depleted. The treasury is depleted. He's pretty fragile as a king at this point in the story. But as we read this story, and we're going to read all of chapter 3, I want to invite you into the story. I want to invite you in to feel the rage against the villain and the horrible things that he is plotting. 
plotting. I want you to be disgusted at this pushover king and how he reacts and quickly gives in. And we're going to embrace this story together. We're going to read this story as though we're reading it in a Jewish ceremony. You see, the way the Jews read Esther is when they read this, Haman was such a vile villain that his name needs to be blotted out from history. And so every time we get to his name, as I read, I need you to boo and I need you to hiss. This is seriously how they do it in Jewish culture. And that's what we're going to do today. And I need it to be passionate. I need it to be loud. I need you to embrace this story today with me. We're going to practice. I'm going to throw a sentence up here on the screen. In chapter three, we meet our villain named. Yes, he is not a good guy. We don't have to do it again. The other services, we had to do it twice. You guys, that was awesome. Here we go. Read this with me. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded, but Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct since Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When so you're getting a little bit weaker, guys. Like, and they, I really like the hissing. I like the hissing. I'm picking it up in verse five. Uh, verse five. When saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. So in the month of April, during the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in presence. The lots were called Purim to determine the best day and month to take action. And the day selected was March 7th, nearly a year later. Then, uh, you guys are awesome, approached King Xerxes and said, there is a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it please the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do as you see fit. So on April 17, the king's secretaries were summoned and the decree was written exactly as dictated. It was sent to the king's highest officers, the governors in the respective provinces and the nobles of each province in their own scripts and languages. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Dispatches were sent by swift messengers into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order 
that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. This was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year. The property of the Jews would be given to those who killed them. A copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all peoples so that they would be ready to do their duty on the appointed day. At the king's command, the decree went out by swift messengers, and it was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. The king and sat down to drink, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. This is the word of the Lord. Church, thanks for doing that. I hope it does feel real. I hope you feel the gravitas of what is happening here. Haman, our villain, is working behind the scenes to carry out a large-scale genocide. He is doing so in a way that makes the Jews plunder for those who will do the dirty work of actually killing them. He is doing so in a way that the king will sign off on, and it is a disgusting edict that is put forward. He really is the perfect villain. Here in Proverbs 6, we see, it says, there are six things the Lord hates, no seven things he detests. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lie, a person who sows discord in a family. Haman nails them all. He's a vile villain. Add to that the fact that he's an Agagite. And to the Jewish reader, an Agagite is those who are in opposition to God. You see, Agagites descend from the Amalekites, and that Amalekites and the Israelites have been going at it for generations and generations. You see, the, the Amalekites are the ones who attacked the Jews as they were vulnerable, coming out of slavery, out of Egypt in the wilderness. They're the ones that attacked them. They're the ones that Moses, whenever he would keep his hands up, they would be winning the battle. And when he got tired and they started to fall, they would lose. And Aaron came and held his hands up and victory was theirs. But those people continued to just come at them. In 1 Samuel 15, we see the prophet Samuel goes and he tells King Saul, I'm giving them to you once and for all. You will destroy them. You will, I will hand them over to you in battle. You will kill every last one. You will not let a single animal live. You will take no plunder. It is finished. And yet we see that King Saul does not obey the Lord and he does not kill them all. And he takes the plunder for himself and his people. And yet... There we have it, 500 years later, this generational hatred continues between the Amalekite and the Israelite, the Agagite, Haman, and the Benjamite, Mordecai. We have the perfect villain. And there's so much that we can learn by looking at the life of Haman, our villain. We see the effects on his, on his life of pride and racism. We see how power has gone to his head and corrupted him. We see the role that revenge plays here. We see how rage can have a dramatic effect on many people beyond just those that we are upset at. And this week, I encourage you to pause and to let spirit bring up any of those that you might deal with, any of these characteristics of, of, of Haman that you struggle with that are holding you back. But that's not where I want to go today. You see, what I see, what jumps out to me here in this chapter is there the more clues of the character of the God we serve, his providential plan again at work behind the scenes, and we look to continue to connect these dots. And here in chapter 3, we see him continue to work anonymously. And so we're going to add some dots today. 
the first thought that we see is that Haman is promoted. You see, Mordecai was kind of thinking he might get that. I'm assuming he had just discovered that plot. He's hoping that he would be the one that's promoted, yet it's his arch rival, Haman. We see also that Mordecai's nationality is discovered. That allows the generational hatred to enter into this story. We see next that Xerxes, it seems like he has an empty treasury. He is vulnerable, and his vulnerability led to a very destructive decision. But the, the, the dot that I really want us to connect today is that Haman rolls the dice. You see, it's this weird thing that's included in the story. Haman rolls the dice. He rolls the dice so that the date and time that this horrible genocide will happen can be determined. Generally, when we have rage, it seems to be impulsive and we wanna so just find a solution or get the revenge as soon as we can. And I have no idea why he didn't just choose the next convenient day, the closest date possible to carry out the genocide. But he doesn't. He rolls the dice. And with the dice being rolled, a date that is almost a year out is given. And a verse in Proverbs suddenly becomes really true and comes to life because we may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. In church, this is the big idea that I want you to take today. Take this with you, because if God determines where the dice fall, what does that say about God? Well, in this story, again, it shows us his providence, his sovereignty. They're front and center once again. We see the wonder of God's character as he orchestrates in unexpected and anonymous ways. Yet to the Jews who are receiving this edict, this is not, they're not seeing it this way. They don't know how the story is going to finish. And for them, I'm assuming they, like us, are frustrated because we want to see God's realness. We want to see his faithfulness in real time. Church, I don't know if that's you, but I know that's me. I want to see his faithfulness in real time. I want to pray and receive healing. I want to pray and see provision happen quickly, not way down the road. In fact, there's times in my faith walk when I look back and say I was entitled in how badly I thought I should see God's faithfulness rise. For me, there's countless times in life where I found myself mumbling, Lord, it just doesn't seem like you're faithful right now. It seems like where is your justice? Lord, why have you forgotten me? And I'm sure for many of you, you've had those seasons as well. Shortly after graduating college, uh, uh, I was going to get married later that summer, and Jess and I were, were applying for jobs, and it seemed that I was going to land a pretty lucrative job with Morgan Stanley in Manhattan. Working in the financial district, it was going to be a job. It was going to be a lot of money involved in this job, and I was pretty excited. It seemed like the job was going to happen. And we began to go to New York and look at apartments that we could rent in, in, in just anticipation that I was going to get this job. But as the date of our wedding began to get closer and closer, the call that the job was mine did not come. And I waited patiently and I waited and I said, Lord, where are you in this? Come on. And stress began to rise and Jess and I took a day trip up to Boston and I'd never been to the city of Boston before, but we just fell in love with the city that day. And during that day, we also felt like God was saying, you guys should just move here. Just do your first year of marriage in this new city. And in obedience, two days later, we went back to Boston with money. First, last month, and security deposit, we rented an apartment with no jobs. Went back to New York, and the next day, the call came from Morgan Stanley. And I said, I got to turn it down. Just rented an apartment in Boston. 
We went on our honeymoon and we returned to Boston. We began looking for jobs. And a week turns into two weeks and then three and then four and then five. And I am mumbling, Lord, where are you? Where is your faithfulness in this? I thought we heard your voice say that we are to move to Boston. I wanted to see God's faithfulness in real time. And I imagine for the Jews in Susa, as they're reading this edict in shock and in fear and the chaos is taking over the city, I imagine them gathering together in fear and saying, Lord, why have you forgotten us? They're saying, where was the dream warning the king of Haman's plot? How about a plague to get the king's attention and end this craziness? Where's the muteness to Haman's mouth? Where's the prophet, the burning bush? Where's the talking donkey? Isn't this the Old Testament? And yet, we don't see it. It's not what we see, but what we do see here is amazing because we see how God works, how he works behind the scenes, and we recognize that sometimes his faithfulness is invisible. Church, it's true, sometimes his faithfulness is invisible. We want to see those dots connected right away, but sometimes it takes a little while. He remains true to his promises, and here, once again, we brilliantly are reminded to not miss God in the ordinary but to pause and to see his revelation, to see his faithfulness happen. For me, I got to live in Boston in a garden level, which means basement apartment, (laughs) eating ramen every now and then, mumbling. But the dots began to become clear as I saw what the money did to some of my friends that did land that job. 9-11, the dots became even clearer as Morgan Stanley owned numerous floors in the one tower. And I began to ask, Lord, what if I had worked for them? What would that mean? And I began to see God's faithfulness and the grass is greener began to, I didn't go there anymore. As I recounted his faithfulness, what I see more than anything here is that our creator God is faithful to his people. Here in chapter three, his faithfulness is revealed as he's the orchestrator of time, the extender of days. He controls the dice that are rolled and it doesn't happen that the date is given two or three weeks out because if that had been the date, story is over. Yet a date that's a year out goes, giving Mordecai time to repent, to bring his people together, to courageously cry out to God for rescue. Because the days were extended, Esther is given an opportunity to let courage rise in her and go before the king, possibly risking her own life, becoming the hero of our story. Because the days were extended. He was faithful and he's the orchestrator of protection among the rage and the pride and the racism of Haman. Boo. He's the conductor in this foreign land. He's the conductor of justice in a land where he's not praised. He remains faithful to his promises, not in the desired real time, but he remains faithful to his people. In each of these providential events reflect his faithfulness to his people. And I want to pause here because I do want to be careful because when we do, we worship him as all-knowing, as the one that's in control, as the one that controls how the dice fall. And if we play that out too far, sometimes we can enter into this like fatalistic mindset, this idea that whatever, God's going to do what he's going to do anyway. His will's going to be done. So, so whatever, that's just the way it is. In church, that's not what we're talking about here. I've lived in a fatalistic society where everything is whatever God wills. You want to get coffee next week? Inshallah, if God wills, I'll be there. It makes mourning look different. It makes grieving look different when your cousin died in a car accident and it just, it was what God willed, no big deal. 
That's not what I'm advocating here. Because what I see here is the heart of Father God, who in this world where the prince of the air, where Satan still roams, where evil still abounds, he's still at work. He redeems the difficult to demonstrate his faithfulness. He's redeeming the difficult situations to demonstrate his faithfulness. Did he cause Esther to be taken into this harem? Did he cause an edict demanding a genocide? No, but he redeems those events for his glory. He redeems those events to demonstrate his faithfulness to his people. In church, he's still in the business of doing this. Sometimes he does it in miraculous, incredible ways, and sometimes he does it anonymously behind the scenes. And I celebrate the fact that we don't have to roll dice to let God determine where they fall. We have his spirit. We have the word of God. We can discern what he is calling us to, what he is asking us to do now. But church, we need to recognize that sometimes his faithfulness is invisible. Equally beautiful here, and the other thing that jumps out at me from this chapter is who God chooses to orchestrate his faithfulness with. I think it's humbling and beautiful You see, the way he works, it's not about auditioning for a role in God's kingdom. It's about obedience when he writes you into the story. I think some of us aren't engaging what he's doing here in our city because we think that we haven't earned a right to be part of it. In church, that's not the way it works. We're not building a resume so we can serve God. He's at work inviting us to partner with him all over the place. In church, we need to embrace that. Who he chooses to use here in Esther is is humbling. He's not choosing to rescue his people with the most devout, the most educated, the most righteous rabbi of the day. Instead, he's using Mordecai, who honestly, in my personal opinion, at this point in the story, is a power-positioning, revenge-oriented, envious man. And yet he says, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you. And it's amazing Sometimes God uses Moses for his plans and his purposes, and sometimes he uses a Mordecai. God is in the business of orchestrating with all of us. We don't have to be righteous, perfect. We just have to be willing and obedient. And so with this, I see an invitation here. And the invitation is this, consider where God might be asking you to partner in the story he is writing. See, I believe he's writing stories in our neighborhoods. I believe he's writing stories in our city. I believe he's writing stories in our nation and in, the, in, in other nations. But today there's two questions I want you to reflect on. The first deals with our neighborhoods. God's written you into the neighborhood you call home. That's the bottom line, that's truth. He's chosen to put you where you live for this time. Are you willing to write a story in that scene? He surrounded you with these people, with a sphere of influence where you get to release the peace of Christ. Who is he asking you to have that difficult conversation with on behalf of the other neighbors? Who is he asking you to invite to a monthly game night or for dinner? Who is he asking you to bring the encouraging word and the flowers to? who he's pursuing? Is there a neighborhood association that he's asking you to be part of? How is he engaging and inviting you to bring peace to your neighborhood? And the other question deals with the city. God's written you into the city for such a time as this. Where is he inviting you to enter the story he is writing here in Salem? 
We exist as a church to see Salem become a city at peace. That's why we exist. And the invitation is there for that to become a reality, for Salem to live into its name means that many of us need to walk in courage and in faith and participate in bringing peace wherever we step. So where are we being invited by God to bring peace, to serve, to give of our finances, to bring a voice to those who are voiceless, to serve those who are underserved. Where are we being asked to bring the peace of Christ where we step in our city? Church, you don't have to earn the right to be part of God's story. It's about willingness and it's about obedience to let him write you in to the story he is already writing. There's a final invitation that I see here in this as well. I'm just gonna summarize it this way. Throw a party and connect the dots. See, last week, Steve gave us a beautiful challenge to reflect on the dots of our own lives, to ask God to reveal to us the times where we felt like he wasn't at work and just see what we missed. Growing up in, in, in New Jersey, outside of New York City, I grew up in a community that was 40% Jewish, which was a great place to grow up. It was great. While, while I did have to learn at a, a young age that we always say happy holidays and not Merry Christmas, there was a beauty in being in a, a community that was heavily Jewish. It came up especially in September and October because the Jews have a whole lot of holidays. So as a kid, we rarely went to school. It was awesome. <laughs> but one of the holidays that the Jews celebrate happens to be, it's coming up here in the next month, and it's called the Feast of Purim. And it's taken from this chapter. Purim is the Persian rolling of the dice. It's the word for dice in Persia. It's a day of remembrance. It's a day of looking back and connecting the dots. A day when the Jews around the world remember God's rescue through Queen Esther. They, re they remember it. And, and, and they remember the dice that were rolled. And the essence of the day is remembering that this seemingly insignificant event opened the door for the rest of the story to happen. They stop and they connect the dots. They celebrate the bodily deliverance from Haman. They build effigies of Haman and they violently destroy them. It's a really intense day. It's a day when the, the little boys dress up as either Haman or they dress up as Mordecai. And they battle. They wrestle all day in the synagogue. They get wooden swords and they fight each other all day and it's okay. It's an intense day. It's a day when all the girls dress up as Queen Esther and they parade around and they show off. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a day of great feasting and lots of drinking and then more drinking. It's a lot of drinking. <laughs> Gifts are lavished on the poor and food is sent to neighbors and friends. But most importantly, the book of Esther is read in its entirety. The book of Esther is read in its entirety and it's interactive and there's lots of cheering and there's lots of booing and there's lots of hissing. But there's something about that communal time when the people gather together and they connect the dots of this amazing story and they declare that God is faithful even when his faithfulness is happening behind the scenes. Purim is a festival of faithfulness in church. Can I encourage us to have our own feasts of faithfulness? to get with your family and friends, to have them over for dinner, to go to a restaurant, to look back together and to notice the coincidence, to connect the dots. Sure, you need to celebrate the big times that he showed up, the times where he did respond in real time. But can I encourage you to also recall the bumps in the road, 
Recall the times when his pursuit seemed less evident. The times, pay attention to those times where you chose not to consult him. Those times where you began to slip away in your faith, where you went a bit rogue, where you rebelled. Look for him in those seasons of your life. Look for him in the times where you were mad and frustrated and you were mumbling because his faithfulness was not seen in real time. And I am confident that as you connect the dots and you look back at those seasons, that you will see that he was there working, redeeming, because it is who he is. And so church, gather, release the testimonies, tell us about your feasts, share those with us. We want to see him worshiped once again as the God who protects the God who provides, sovereign over all, we behold him as the faithful one. And as we do that, we ask him to do it again because he is true to his promises. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing story of Esther. We thank you for this glimpse into how you work, even when it seems like you might not be working. And we declare today that you are a God who is faithful. Lord, you're so faithful. We declare that. We worship you and we respond to you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your protection. We declare you are faithful. And so I release courage over my brothers and sisters that this week that they will be able to look back and connect the dots. I pray that your spirit would come, that you would bring discernment, that you would help us see the times that you were at work that we missed in our lives. And in that, Lord, would you release new and fresh worship in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.